Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Pasha. My name is Godfred Boafo. Thank you for joining us. The Democratic Republic of Congo is the largest country in sub-Saharan Africa. It also has one of the richest collection of mineral resources of any country on the continent. Its many fiscal attributes extend even further. The land is fertile in agriculture, including fishing on its many lakes, plays a big part in people's lives. These resources are at the center of a great deal of the violence that's become endemic in parts of the country. Rebel groups seeking to exploit these resources have made parts of the country ungovernable. By some estimates, there are over 70 armed groups led by warlords, traditional tribal elders, village heads, and politically motivated resistance fighters. The area of conflict we are focusing on today is around the country's lakes. These landscapes stand at the intersection of geography, war, and authority. Joining us today is Dr. Esther Marenin, Assistant Professor of Sociology of Development and Change at the Wageningen University in the Netherlands. Our West African editor, Adejuan Shoyenka, picks her brain on her recent research looking at lakes. You've worked extensively in the DRC, and some of your more recent research looks at lakes in the region. In particular, you looked at Lake Edward and how contentious it has been lately. You know, Take us through where the lake is located and the parties involved in the tensions surrounding it. Yes, Lake Edward is located for the most part in the eastern part of the Democratic in Congo, but also for a small part in Uganda. It's at the border of the two countries and is as such as also at the epicenter of for already two decades of violent conflict in the region. And um, the specific part on the Congolese side of the lake is that it's completely located within the boundaries of the Virunga National Park, which is a World Heritage uh, site. And as such, it's a, it's a completely protected area. Uh, but because of different reasons, there are, um, there are a few uh, fishing villages still uh, operating in the park. So yeah, so on the lake, uh, you still have two fishing villages that are allowed. Some other fishing villages are, are kind of um, accepted by the park management, but many of the fishing villages in the lake are actually illegal fishing sites um, that the park tries to, tries to address. And these are the parties involved in the tensions? What is this tension really? The tension is that because the part of the lake is in a conservation area, the, the park managers really try to limit the, the illegal fishing within, within the park. They really try to address this to an absolute minimum. Uh, and this creates a conflict. But also because many different rebel groups are now also operating in the lake and on, around the lake. And this creates an often really violent situation. Uh, but as we see often in the media, if we hear stories, unfortunate incidents where uh, par guards, Runga par guards get killed, um, this often happens around the lake and this often involves the rebel groups that are operating around the lake. As such, it often when we hear about the lake in the media, it's presented as a story of the rebels fighting the par guards. But we often forget that there are actually many civilians around the lake and that this is, is often forgotten. And in my research, I often focus on this difficult position of these fisher, fishermen, fisher people that live in the lake that, that, that have to deal with both the rebel groups and the park management. Now, you mentioned that um, two communities 
legally allowed to to operate around the 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 lake and then there are others that are not allowed but are there anyway now what criteria do you know was used to to determine who is allowed and who isn't allowed and is this feeding into the conflict yes exactly this is definitely feeding in the conflict because when the park is trying to hold on to a convention that stipulates how these fishing villages are able to operate and how many people can can be around the lake and they're holding on to a colonial convention. So these agreements were negotiated in the colonial times. And of course, these are, um, has been based on unequal power relations and have not, we cannot see them as a very, um, they have not been conducted in, in, a, in the due process. So people contest this colonial convention that is regulating who can access the park and who can't access the park. And actually this, this contention, rebel groups are profiting from this because they are by this way getting legitimacy of being the ones that claim to protect the people they want to have to access to the lake. Um, and what is also a big problem is that in the colonial period, uh, initially the, the part of the lake was not yet included in the Vroonga National Park. But slowly the colonial authorities tried to extend the park and try to include the lake as well within the park. But to do that, it was a very contentious process and many people objected. That's when sleeping sickness came in. Also known as human African trypanosomiasis, sleeping sickness is a vector-borne parasitic disease transmitted to humans by the cheta fly, which if left untreated can be fatal. It led to the displacing of people. But then you had the sleeping sickness that evolved and under the pretense of the sleeping sickness, many people were dislocated from the park. When they were dislocated, uh, afterwards the park, uh, the colonial authorities um, decided to include this part of the lake within the park. And this uh, stopped the possibility of people of returning to the lake uh, because then they found that their land and their fishing rights were incorporated in the lake. And we see that till today, people contest this colonial decision that has been made. Please take us through what your research found in the midst of all of these uh, contentions. It's very important to uh, look at the historical, um, in, uh, the historical side of the lake and to really look at the long durée of these conflicts around the lake. Because it's often now seen as um, a very contemporary conflict situation where people just want to have economic uh, opportunities and just for economic reasons try to exploit the lake, try to overfish, uh, are engaged in unsustainable fishing practices and that the rebels themselves are actually uh, pushing, pushing um, being involved in, in the fishing because of economic reasons. But what I found in my research is that historically the lake has been always a site um, of contestations and, um, and connectivity. Um, the park, even in pre-colonial times, before the, uh, the, the lake was incorporated in the conservation area, the, the lake was a very vibrant hub of social, um, cultural and political connections. And it was really a central um, area in, in the region. And um, if we understand this importance of the lake from a social, cultural and political perspective as well, we understand why um, the, the aim of incorporating the lake within a national park is creating so much friction. And I really underline this historical importance of the lake for people to really understand 
how and why the current conflicts are so persistent so we can address them also with taking these historical injustices into account. For example, around the lake, there are still very important ancestral burial grounds for certain people uh, living in Eastern Congo. They have their, um, their shrines and their, their very important holy sites are around the lake. And they also wanted to continue to claim and have access to these uh, important cultural sites. And so their existence and their presence can not only be explained by economic reasons and being, by being there just for economic reasons. I wanted to stress as well is that uh, often we would see like landscapes in conflict areas as either controlled by the state, as a well-governed area that is under the control of the state, or as an area controlled and governed by rebels. And this is a kind of presented as either or in this situation of war and conflict. But I would suggest by the research I did on Lake Edward that Instead of these rebel-governed versus state-governed areas, we should think them maybe as rebellious landscapes and having, uh, by having their own social, political and cultural dynamics, these landscapes themselves are actually often contesting um, both forms of complete control and are really renegotiating the, the structures of authority of who decides and um, who is actually uh, controlling life and uh, around, around the lake. Now, you, you've touched on historical and, and social-cultural attachments as, as one of the reasons why the lakes are contentious. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, in fact the entire Congo, is known to be a resource-rich um, area. So, in the midst of this kind of resource-rich territory, why are these lakes such contested spaces? Lakes are actually very important sites, so not economically indeed for its resources, but it also offers people some form of autonomy to be engaged in fishing. It allows you to be free of any other uh, structural, a lot of the structural political problems in the, in the DRC. Uh, and it uh, provides some form of assured livelihood that allows you to continue to, uh, to provide for yourself and your families while uh, a lot of other activities become very difficult when there is a lot of conflict and violence going on. Um, so it offers people really an important form of, of resilience. Okay, so what's wrong with the management of the lake? So the current management of the, of the Virunga National Park really tries to to bring the lake back under control. And they want to completely control who gets in the lake, who gets out of the lake. And by doing that, they are relying mostly on two mechanisms. They are uh, implementing uh, interventions, logistical interventions, uh, trying to really uh, regulate the roads that go there, uh, setting up uh, infrastructure that is completely uh, checking who gets in and out, but they also follow military operations to address the rebel groups around the park. And I would say that both this, this very, uh, this a bit top-down approach of trying to arrange the infrastructure and by trying to militarily control the lake, they neglect the fact that people have social and cultural and political attachments to the lake uh, that needs to be addressed and taken into account as well. And by not taking these into account and by neglecting people's historical grievances over 
they're being dislocated from the lake and being deprived from access to the lake. And by neglecting these historical injustices, the park is actually just only providing a form and source of legitimacy for the rebel groups that are operating around the lake that claim to protect civilians. But then this is also very unfortunate because I also have to stress that these rebel groups don't have the protection of the civilians always at heart. They are actually a very big source of insecurity and deprivation for the fishermen. While they're claiming to protect them, uh, the fisher communities are actually often in between two kinds of giants uh, that are fighting each other. The Virunga National Park with the park guards and the rebel groups and the fishing communities really find themselves in the middle and kind of trapped within this situation. You've kind of touched on the answers to this next question, but if you were to prioritize based on your experience doing this research, what would you say are the top three things that needs to be done to properly manage the lake moving forward? I think what is very important to manage the lake in the future is to really hear and listen to the voices of uh, of the fishing uh, communities around the lake. Well, there's often now a lot of military language uh, of addressing the rebel groups, like just try to demilitarize the situation and look at non-military solutions to uh, listen to what are the grievances and the problems of the people around the lake and try to engage into a process with them uh, instead only of pursuing the military options. And the voices are there and people are also um, demonstrating in non-violent ways, people are protesting um, uh, in non-violent ways as well, uh, people are organizing themselves, there are civil society organizations around the lake, there are different interest groups that you can talk to and that you can engage with. And um, I, as a Western researcher, will not also say how the lake should be managed because I, then I would also even continue in this colonial control over the lake that is already going on for so long. So instead of me trying to say, okay, we should manage the lake like, like this, I would just try to uh, really point out that there are already many ideas and many voices around the lake that have actually ideas about this, but we should start uh, we should start this process. And I would suggest that instead of trying to revitalize the colonial agreements and the colonial conventions that, that stipulated how the park should be managed, maybe we should start, they should start a new process. The different uh, actors that, that are on the ground between the different authorities, the state, the Congolese state authorities, the, the Vrunga National Park, which is a transnationalized entity now, as a British NGO is uh, partly uh, responsible for the management of the park and the communities um, around the, the park and really to have this uh, bottom-up process going on. Thank you, Esther, for your time and for your really rich insights that you've provided. Lakes around the DRC are incredibly contentious spaces. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Pasha, produced by Ozer Patel. From me, Gottfried Boafo. Bye for now.